Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Herpetological Highlights with your hosts Tom Major and Ben Marshall. Thanks for joining us again and yeah this week we are going to be talking about a specific pit viper and it's not very often recently we've been able to choose our own episode because we've had so many kind and generous patrons picking the episodes for us um, but this week we've actually decided on a topic ourselves and sure enough we're going to be talking about a snake and it's a pit viper and I think by all accounts it's uh, widely regarded to be a pretty cool little critter and that is the Sidewinder aka Critalis cerastes. So yeah. I feel like these these guys are one of the they've got to be up there with one of the best known most iconic vipers right? That Absolutely. movement type, that, that star where they're living the whole, like, uh, leaving that, those marks in, in the sand. I feel like it's, it's one of the earliest snakes you become aware of, uh, like growing up and stuff. Cause they're just so unique and so, so sort of odd in some ways. Yeah. I, I definitely remember seeing, there's like, such classic BBC stock footage of these things just like sidewinding right? yeah. up sand dunes and it's just so iconic like you said yeah very very yeah like on those memories. old um, eyewitness uh, documentaries eyewitness documentaries weren't they eyewitness remember those I... those videos that had uh, were, they, were they the, the super sense stuff like a show oh. about animals with, with crazy senses and things I have no recollection of this, but it sounds completely plausible. There's definitely a thing with a with a. I can see the eye. <laughs> was this the one that had like? Was it the one where the introduction to the TV show was them like zooming through a museum? Yes, maybe. I seem to recall an episode of that on dinosaurs. Yeah, uh, there was definitely did, things on dinosaurs. Did it have like uh, all sorts was of it, stuff? Was the theme tune like Oxygen Part Two? Where it was like <laughs> I don't know. I, I, oh, I who's that know. by that song? I have a very you've really you've triggered a kind of like dormant memory here. Yeah, um, but this is a thing. It's somewhere in the back of my mind, but it's it's there. I remember <laughs> Sidewinders and like that old BBC stock footage sort of stuff. It's always good podcasting when you give people half the information. <laughs> Let them fill in the gaps themselves. Oh, uh, I'm 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 so I'm sure people have grown up with exactly the documentary we're talking about know exactly what we're talking about <laughs> oh they've got the same experience they've got the same vague recollections as we have sort of group amnesia yeah <laughs> weird um but yes so these pit vipers sidewinders crotalus serastes serastes meaning horned because of the little horns above their eyes but not to be confused with the north african genus of vipers called serastes which is another bunch of little horned creatures oh, so scaled vipers and that lot right that's a that's a cerastes isn't it mm, i think so scaled vipers are mostly uh, echis. oh no it's echis isn't it what am yeah. i thinking of oh i'm thinking of pseudo cerastes ah uh, pseudo cerastes arachnoides exactly that's that's the iranian spider tail of course yeah yeah yes 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 yeah. yes so um yeah cerastes actually as a word features a lot in the names of um vipers of many kinds as it turns out um but yeah the common name sidewinder as you said comes from their unusual means of locomotion where they move efficiently across sand without slipping by pushing on the ground with parts of their body while other parts lift and go sideways and it also stops them from getting too hot on hot sand when they have to move around during the day 
But we're not here to talk about their movements so much as we're here to talk about their kind of feeding ecology, really. Yeah, feeding ecology, but with an added twist, or at least the added context of uh, maybe how they're using thermal stuff to improve it. Um, and when... Yeah, you said you said no movement. There's a little bit of movement there, a little bit of movement and activity, but a big, hefty chunk of uh, thermal ecology too. Oh yeah, I found it. Dorling Kindersley Eyewitness Books, a series of children's books, and they had a had a nature TV series. Okay, wait a second here. What's it called? Eyewitness. Witness. It's called Eyewitness. All one word. There were three seasons. And they were about amphibians, birds, cat, dinosaur, dog, elephant, fish, horse, insect, jungle, reptile, shark, skeleton. That was the first season. <laughs> and somewhere Me. there, probably the reptile one, they have that sidewinder footage. And I can see it in my mind. Okay, let me see here. I'm going to watch the dinosaur one. Made in 1994, the dinosaur one. Oh my gosh, this is it. Right? Ah. Uh, oh man, this is like... This is intense nostalgia. Yeah? <laughs> this is getting right into <laughs> the... <laughs> this is the origins of what we're doing now. Just This 100%? Yeah, full circle most, right here. Yeah, this is the most rousing of any introduction music to anything yep. ever. Is it going through the museum? Yes, it is exactly yeah. what I think. But it's not. It's not Oxygen Part Two. <laughs> what I convinced myself it was. Well, maybe you need to do a remake, a redubbing of it. Yeah. Wow. That's a. That is such a blast from the past. Cool. There you go. Um, Apologies for interrupting. <laughs> no, I mean I'm glad you did because yeah, that's really like fitted a piece of my uh, childhood documentary puzzle, <laughs> which I've long forgotten. It's quite cool. Um, so yeah, the papers by Clark Dorr, Whitford, Framiller, Putman, 2016, Activity Cycles and Foraging Behaviours of Free-Ranging Sidewinder Rattlesnakes, Cratalus cerastes, The Ontogeny of Hunting in a Precocial Vertebrate, published in Zoology. So yeah, cool premise. Do snakes change their hunting behaviours as they age? Yes. Good question. So I feel like there's another another word in that title that needs defining, right? Yeah, precocial. Yeah, so basically, am I right in saying that that is a species that does not hang around with its parents for any period of time and therefore has no uh, time during its early development to learn from parents or, I suppose, cons- well, maybe conspecifics as well. Yeah, conspecifics as well. A lot. Yeah, lots of animals watch the behaviour of others who aren't necessarily even related to them. Yeah, and learn from that. But not these guys, because that's what precocial means, as you've said. Um, yeah, the opposite is what? Altrocial? Uh, I don't know. Is that a term you just made up, or is... is are you? Oh, no, altricial. Oof, it's not a great word. Opposite. Altricial species learn not only from direct experience but also from mimicking the behaviour of others, typically parents, but occasionally other conspecifics. But not these guys. Nope. These They're are on their own. Precocial. Precocial. Yep. 
Um, but because they're little, what am I talking about? Yeah. So yeah, that's the kind of basic premise, isn't it? They not they're not copying anyone. So you, logically, you'd think they would start off worse at hunting than when they're older. They might get better. And so that was kind of what they wanted to find out. But also, they were just kind of trying to pick apart differences between the juveniles and the adults which in reality is a lot easier to do than actually following one to prove it's learnt which is beyond the scope of what they did here yeah and that would be exceptionally difficult just in the sense of having to track enough uh well number one it's a long-term study which is going to be difficult to do but second you've got to actually find some juveniles that survive to adulthood um so that means you're going to have a way bigger sample to begin with just to have enough survive at the end to be able to compare or to be able to uh, see how they changed. Very tricky. Yeah. Very tricky. Yeah, so in order to track these snakes, um, with the adults, they had the luxury of using radio telemetry where they put a radio tracking device inside the body of the snake and track it down every day, find out where it is so they can look at it ambushing. With the juveniles, because miniaturization of radio telemetry tags hasn't yet got to the point where you can put one inside a juvenile snake and certainly not one that will have any battery life worth mentioning well or they actually or, you know simultaneously safe for the snake i mean you could you could feasibly fit one in a juvenile snake but the thing is it's going to mess up that juvenile snake and there's no way you'd want to risk it like yeah no way yeah if, and if so wrong. Yeah, because of that they had to think of another way of tracking these juvenile snakes unfortunately for them Old school tracking actually works on these snakes because they live in an area with so much sand, they actually leave trails behind them wherever they go. And so many times they could follow a juvenile if it had left where they knew where it last was, follow the trail in the sand and sure enough, they'd find the new the snake in its new position. So yeah, that really allowed them to uh, get lots and lots of video footage. Which is what huge amounts of video footage, like hundreds of hours worth of video yeah. footage. So they'd find find these individuals where they're where they're hanging out and set up um, continuously running CCTV. Correct? Yeah, running, that's uh, right. What 50, 15 frames a second or something like that? So not like yeah. uh, not as good as what you shoot in a movie with, but good enough to get some nice behavioural information without. Um, I suppose I suppose they ran it on a lower frame rate to get more a, a greater duration compared to the amount of data, uh, amount of memory, hard drive space it would take up. So, a compromise there, but good enough. They had a like field station thing, which the CCTV cameras were beaming information to as well. So it was a pretty high-tech setup. Um, and this is going on in the Mojave Desert in California, which is, you know, as iconic a place as this is iconic a snake, I'd say. And oh, yeah. Sidewinders, they're generally inactive during the overwintering period from November to March, because it just gets a little bit too chilly. They like to go underground. But they exhibit their surface activity in, well, beginning in March and running through to October, which, interestingly, is exactly the same as the Escalapian snakes, which I study. Um, (laughs) But during the summer months, they're mainly nocturnal. So this is May to September, because it's just hot, hot, hot. And they kind of go underground in thermal refuges through the daytime, and they emerge either just before or just after sunset, and then they stay out ambushing overnight and into the morning until it gets too hot for them and they have to go back inside. And as you said, yeah, we were, we were watching the snakes on CCTV and trying to ascertain what's going on with them and their prey. And what they did was they filmed all this footage. And as you said, it was lots of hours. It was actually very close to 1,000 hours of footage was shot for this paper. 
And if any prey species came within a meter of the snake, it was classified as an encounter. And if it came within strike distance of the snake, it was... Um, well, that was classified if it came within 25 centimeters of adults or 15 centimeters of juveniles. So, basically, yeah, reflecting basically... the length of the uh, the length of the snake, right? Because the uh, adults were like just a little bit less than that. The adults were on average 52 centimeters, juveniles 29 centimeters. So the exactly. reason they've got so... those different measurements is because of the uh, potential reach of those animals, uh, because it wouldn't be fair to class it as an encounter if the juvenile was outside of its potential range. Yeah, exactly. And there was some talk of how close the snakes can actually sense that there's a prey item nearby, and there's been some mm-hmm. other studies of that in rattlesnakes, and they reckon within a metre, um, snakes can definitely tell that there's something there, and so that's what they classified as an encounter. The snake is most likely aware that there's prey in the vicinity. Um, but yeah, as you say, 50% of the body length of the snake is given to be its uh, strike range. It's pretty pretty typical measurement you hear people say about snakes, how far they can strike. Some some it's further, some it's less. Um, but yeah, snake strikes, when basically when a prey item came within striking distance of a snake uh, and the snake actually struck, these strikes were either categorized as hits or misses. But because they happen so fast, sometimes it's very unclear in the footage and you know as you said it's only 15 frames per second so these snakes are striking so fast that in actuality only one or two of those uh, frames are actually going to contain the snake strike so sometimes there was some ambiguity as to whether or not they'd struck but they counted it as a hit if they could definitely see the snake's head contacting the prey or if after the strike was performed the snake began strike induced chemosensory searching which is posh speak for sniffing all around with his little tongue and trying to find out where the prey's gone because that is a kind of um, stereotyped behaviour of rattlesnakes and some other vipers too. Um, After they strike something, they'll start this crazy tongue flicking, looking around, trying to pick up the scent and then sure enough, they'll follow the scent of that prey item which has been envenomated all the way to wherever it's subsequently died. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's It's a quick strike. And then sort of pull back because you don't want to be around a flailing in pain prey animal because that's when you get injured. So quick strike and then track down the prey afterwards. So all about yeah. a sort of uh, mitigating the risk to the snake. Yeah. Yeah. And and they're smart, you know, they won't always let go. Sometimes if the prey is small enough, they will just hang on to it and yeah. reduce the chance of losing it and wait, wait for the venom to take effect. But like you say, if it's a bigger, more dangerous prey item... Bite, see in a bit, wait for it to succumb to the venom, and then, yeah, go and gobble it down. But that wasn't just what they were looking at. They had the nice aspects with the strike and, and the prey and recording what prey they were eating, but they were also looking at, at uh, this sort of activity and when they were exhibiting different behaviours. And they basically classified four different behaviours where you had ambush, moving, uh, sheltering in a burrow, and this loose coil behavior. Uh, now, loose coil was it was on the surface, but was potentially thermoregulating or pre-shedding, shedding its skin or something along those lines. So, and we had four four behaviors that they were looking for. Um, and within ambush, there was a little bit more detail where they classified how frequently the snake was like tongue flicking and performing other sort of 
ambush-related behaviours. Uh, one of the ones that seems to be most interesting in terms of their results is this tail uh, tail wiggling. Um, what's, the, what's the term they use? They don't use tail wiggling because that's a little bit absurd. They have a special... They term. called it tail undulation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there we go. Because they... Yeah, they didn't want to call it caudal luring, um, which is a topic that we've talked about quite a lot and is a behavior which I really enjoy. I think it's really cool. Yeah. Where, especially pit vipers, um, but also some boas have been seen to do it, where the snake will undulate its tail, um, you know, mimicking some kind of grub or worm or whatever it might be, and use that to lure prey. Um, But they didn't want to call it caudal luring in this paper because they're not convinced... It that is. is its function. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was a couple of reasons for that. Yeah. Namely, um, they didn't always... Well, ordinarily, and for the most part, when snakes exhibit caudal luring, it's in response to a prey item being nearby. So the, basically the snake will see or sense, uh, usually a lizard or a frog, something like that, and then they'll be like, okay, it's time to give my tail a little wiggle. This thing's coming over. Uh, however, in the case of the sidewinders in this study, they didn't ever see them do it in the presence of a prey item. They only ever saw them do it kind of just at random. Um, it was more frequently juveniles and adults, uh, which is kind of in line with what other studies have found. It seems to be quite a common behavior of juveniles. That's not to say adults never did it, but juveniles were more likely to do it. Um, but yeah, the they weren't doing it in the presence of a prey item. And then also, after they did it, quite often they wouldn't wait. They wouldn't wait more than a couple of minutes, and then they'd leave where they were. So you'd think if they were trying to attract something, they'd be a little bit more patient and wait for the thing to come over. But it tended to be towards the end of an ambush session. They'd give it a little go and then move off. So you know, the purpose of this behaviour isn't clear. There was yeah. another rattlesnake species that's also been documented doing it kind of at random in the absence of a prey item. But because of that. Because of that uncertainty, they were just like, "Well, we can't really call it caudal um, luring." Caudal luring, which yeah, which is sensible when when you're classifying behaviours, it's it's worth not inferring the purpose until later on in the paper. I feel like when you when you're doing the the straight assessment from uh, observation, keep it quite uh, clear and clean, and then you can infer what the animal's doing or the purpose of it a little bit later. Um, you touched on there this uh, only juveniles were doing it. And this is what this paper was really getting at, is whether adults and juveniles are uh, foraging in, in different ways, i.e. something indicating uh, onto the genetic change or them gaining more experience and becoming more effective or something along those lines. So you've got this, this non-caudal luring, luring, tail wiggling thing. Um, but largely it looked like juveniles and adults pretty similar in the way that they are they're foraging there was no real difference in how long they were sitting at a particular site um, there was no particular difference in how far they would move to find a new site um, there wasn't a difference in the rate of successful strikes on a prey item um, yeah, I, f- yeah. I feel like those were the main ones that they didn't see a difference in, correct? Not yeah, seeing that's any, right. any major ones. Yeah, basically, for the most part, what that exemplifies is just that the babies are born as full-blown killers, right? They're pretty much yeah. just like 
as capable, not entirely as we'll get into, there are some things they're not, well, there's a couple of things they're not quite as good at and they do behave slightly differently. But for the most part, I mean, the similarities between the um, success of juveniles and adults and their behaviours, as you say, is remarkably similar. And the kind of general life history of this snake, as kind of revealed by this paper, is, right, find an ambush position, stay there, and the amount of time they're going to stay there often is more than one day. So they'll take refuge in a burrow uh, through the day and then they'll come back out to the same ambush site the next night. And they'll stay there, but between... I mean, the shortest time was five hours, but the longest time was like 260-something hours. So, yeah. you know, they're averaging around 50 or something hours in um, in each ambush position. And then once they tire of that ambush position, perhaps it hasn't worked, Some for some reason they decide, okay, it's time for a change, they'll move off and they'll kind of just go all around the place, smelling, changing direction, lots and lots, moving, you know, never more than about 640 metres, but often much less. And when they find a new spot, they'll stop, they'll stay there, another few days, whatever it might be, refuging overnight and then the cycle will repeat itself and if they're lucky enough to catch a prey item they'll just spend a few days underground digesting it before they you know begin the cycle over again so that is what sidewinders get up to and that is like you say broadly similar between adults and juveniles which is interesting because you know as you've said this is a snake which is precocial it doesn't need any training from its uh, parents or conspecifics and um, yeah, you know, it, it's perfectly ready to just come out and just get to killing. But there was one notable difference, certainly yeah. from where I was seeing, between the adults and the juveniles in terms of their success. Encounter rate, right? Exactly. The adults yeah. came across more prey items than the juveniles. No, but I feel like it's important to say them because is, yeah. I have a feeling this is slightly smaller sample than we would like. Okay, 36 prey encounters, 25 for adults and 11 for juveniles. So that's encounters where the, the prey is within a metre of the animal mm -hmm. snake. So basically the way they... It, it's higher than what you would expect for adults and lower than what you would expect for juveniles. Uh, significantly so. Wait, run that by me again. The encounter rate uh, for adults with prey was higher than what you would expect. Yeah? Whereas for juveniles, it was lower than what you'd expect. Like, you would have expected them to encounter more prey, sort of, by chance as such, than they did. They don't. They don't explain that. No, it's because I have a feeling that's how the stats test describes things, and it's it might be off something like number of prey encounters over number of individuals, or something along those lines, or number of overall prey encounters, or something like that. It's something generated from the data, um, right? Relatively, sort of simply, I believe. Um, does it, does it say what type of test it is? Chi-squared, that's what they've got there. Goodness of fit tests. We use chi-squared, goodness of fits, and more than 80% of the expected values were greater than 5. Yeah, because it, it, it ordinarily you would... I'm, I'm not entirely positive what their like base sample is, because if it was, I don't know, like, chance of a snake encountering prey and the, and the sample is on an individual, then that would... That could be it, where it's X number of individuals out of 
individuals sampled encountered some prey. Um, but I can't imagine it's that because it's probably tied to ambush. But I I don't know. Not not entirely clear without digging into it further, which I'm not going to do right this second. Yeah, I kind of feel like that observed expected thing is just needless confusion. Like you can really adequately explain that they're better at ambushing without it. Well, the trick is the trick is you have to control for the amount of um, like time spent ambushing uh, between adults and juveniles because presumably that's also different. So you have to take that into account, and I presume that that's what's been used to generate this expected value. Say so maybe there's a, maybe there's a fifty percent chance of. Uh, you know, maybe it's very straightforward like that. You've got a 50% chance of encountering prey or not at a given site. And so that's the expected. And anything greater than a 50% is greater than expected. And anything less is less. And may, may, maybe it's as simple as that. Mm. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm bad at remembering my chi squared stats test like that. I, I use them so infrequently. Yeah, I don't know. If it's a modelling approach, I could pro- would make better sense of it. But well, to draw to sort of really just boil it down, adults encountered more prey than juveniles, right? Oh yeah, that's that's yeah. It, us not fully understanding where the expected values come from doesn't undermine the fact that yeah, it's quite clear that adults are encountering more prey. I think the, well, the clearest the clearest difference between the uh, adults and juveniles is this this prey encounter rate. Uh, basically, adults were more likely to encounter prey than juveniles were, and uh, significantly so. So it does look like, well, they go about explaining this in several different ways, because you, you're not entirely positive that prey encounter rate is entirely like experience-driven. It might be, maybe they get better at crypsis as they get older. Maybe they get better at following chemical cues that put them in a a better position to find uh, to find prey. That might be more experience related, or or it's just that there is a survivor balance uh, bias here that the adults they were tracking by virtue of being better at finding prey, were more likely to survive, therefore more likely to be sampled, and it ref- basically their increased encounter rates reflect that they were just the better ones. They were the ones that survived. Whereas the juveniles, you're looking at all the juveniles, presumably with quite few that have uh, you know, been taken by predators, not found enough food and starved, that sort of stuff. So... It's hard to tease apart whether it's just like a survivorship thing, these just happen to be the better ones that we, we, we found, or whether it is something that is directly uh, tied to experience and getting better at certain aspects of uh, foraging. Yeah, and then it could be both as well. That too, and certainly the survivorship aspect uh, is definitely going to be there to a certain extent. It's just whether the other stuff is having a bigger impact beyond just these ones happen to be especially good. Well, and survive. Mm, so that's the next step. Follow one snake, or follow a series of snakes, and uh, yeah, work out whether or not they're getting better over time. But that right, is a so big, you random, randomly select a bunch of juveniles and then follow them all the way to their own <coughs> lives. Yeah. Or at least until they're adults, and, and you know, you like confident that any experience gain would have been achieved by, you know, in that period of time.
Yeah, yeah. The only other main difference between the juveniles and the adults is that juveniles come out earlier. So they come out sometimes even before sunset, whereas adults are usually coming out just after sunset. Um, And that might be because they have a greater reliance on lizards as prey, which are active then, but they're not quite sure. Yeah, and they were also pointing out that although there was a sort of, there was a difference in means, it wasn't significant. Um, so, okay, there's this issue of this binary binary calf. Okay, they're not different. They are different. It's just not a massive difference. So it'd be like positive that there's something going on there. Yeah, it's, it seems like there is, but yeah, without, without more snakes or a more dramatic difference, it's going to be hard to see right. for sure. Right. Basically, people can be like... <laughs> I'm going to refute that claim. And because of the p-value, you can't say anything about it. <laughs> yeah, well, but what's nice about it is it is one of those questions where like, hmm, that's pretty neat. And it's, and it's enough, of a, enough of a little hint to be like, that probably warrants further, further study right there. And what's nice, well, we had that whole, whole tangent last episode about trying to work out activity of sandboas. This is the sort of question that you could answer with what we were talking about last episode. You just throw some transmitters and juvenile snakes and adult snakes and be able to see that sort of that difference. Okay, you got an issue with juveniles of a lot of species being too small, but you know, we were, we read that uh, paper about anacondas, right? They were big enough for radio transmitters, so maybe it'd be something uh, workable, workable with uh, anacondas in that context. Yeah, that would be cool too. Yeah. I reckon there'd be some cool um, aquatic behaviour of anacondas with... Because you're talking about the um, the switches, right, that tell you when they're yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh, yeah, that, that as well. It, yeah, it could be wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah, that is the sidewindies. And the babies are good hunters. They come out ready to kill and they kill at will. Yeah, and they have the very classic viper um, foraging tactic of sit still, ambush, wait, move a decent distance, find a new site, and repeat. Repeat until prey is gained. Yeah, and they uploaded some of the videos that they shot onto YouTube, um, which you can watch, and I'll share them in the show notes. Uh, And some of them are very entertaining. (laughs) a mixture of successes of snakes and not successes but it's just cool to see how snakes interact and to be honest one of the most impressive things for me is just the patience of the snakes to wait until the prey is like 100% within range sometimes the lizard will be like mooching around them for quite a while before they actually take the plunge and go for it which is quite cool yeah so that's a that's a nice paper on uh, activity and movement where they're sort of how they're dealing with prey, but sort of moving on from that, how are they how are they picking where to look for prey? <laughs> and we have a paper from that was published in Scientific Reports in 2019 by uh, Shruff, Bakken, and Clark. Infrared sensing snakes select ambush orientation based on thermal backgrounds. Hey, yeah. So yeah, pit vipers, pit vipers, and some other snakes 
like boas and pythons, can sense infrared radiation through heat-sensitive pits in their faces. That's right, they see heat, and this is hard for us to comprehend because we cannot see heat. And the easiest way to understand it is to watch the film Predator and see how the Predator locates its human prey using the heat signatures of those people. Yep. That's yep, literally that's, that's, the best way. That's, that's your best example. Yep. Uh, this is a subject we visited on the podcast a couple of times before. We talked a lot about it in episode 11, Survival of the Vipers. Uh, but the basic idea is that the snakes have a hole on either side of their face, which works like a pinhole camera and contains a flap of really sensitive skin that can detect minute changes in temperature of around 0.001 degrees Celsius. And information from that membrane is combined with visual information from the eyes in the optic tectum and fed to the brain. And it's sensitive to changes in temperature. So when something in front of them is suddenly warmer or cooler, they will take dramatic notice of it and in this study they were trying to take this investigation to the next level and like you said ben work out if sidewinders are using their infrared sensing abilities not just to see the prey when it walks past their field of range but also when assessing the environment and choosing somewhere to sit and wait for prey and lie in ambush right because you've got to be pretty pretty on point to get uh, to capture a lot of these prey items i mean prey's not just going to roll over and let you eat it so you need to maximize your chances of being able to strike a prey item successfully and not miss. And a big aspect of not missing is knowing exactly where to strike. And therefore, these snakes are wanting to set up in areas that they can very easily distinguish their prey from the background. And basically, it's not known exactly... You know, there's been some suggestions before this paper and stuff, but not knowing exactly what the snakes are looking for. What, what, in terms of the thermal environment, are they picking to try and maximise their chances of, of picking out a prey item and uh, actually hitting it? And this is what these guys, these guys are trying to do. They went out and about, found a bunch of sidewinders in ambush, and then did a... A uh, 360 degree panorama with their, their thermal imaging camera. Yeah, it's very high tech. It's, it's very high tech. It's fancy, yeah. Yeah, so they go to where the snake's ambushing and they take a 360 degree panorama of the infrared landscape. And importantly, making note of the direction that the snake has set up in this ambush site. So you're very much getting an idea of what the snake is looking at and uh, what the other options are surrounding it. So you're, you're looking at, okay, which way is it picking uh, to ambush? And it's not, it's not exactly uh, an uncomplicated finding, this. Um, in other studies of pit vipers, there's been a suggestion that they like to face a really homogenous um, infrared background. So like the Chinese pit vipers, Gloidius shadowensis, they prey on birds and they typically choose ambush sites which face open sky. And that way, when a bird comes across, the idea is that across a blank 
boring sky, a nice warm bird is going to be really easy to pick out. And I think that's probably what they were anticipating when they began this study is like, okay, it's probably just going to like look at an area of open sand and then when the animal comes, it'll be really obvious. No, they, they didn't face backgrounds that had higher contrast values than average than the like 360 degree average, but they did pick backgrounds that had... Uh, like a higher rate of change of contrast. So they had this, this gradient. It's a little tricky, tricky to get your head around because it's not just straight contrast. It's more. So let's, let's imagine you've got a, what would be a good example of this? Um, maybe something like, uh, an animal or something coming out of fog towards you. And so if it was just a straight homogeneous background, maybe that would be harder to judge distance and judge where the animal was exactly. But if you have this gradient, you've got things to compare it to. And as the animal is coming through this gradient and then moving in relation to this gradient, you've got a better idea of, okay, that's when to strike. When it, when it breaks through, uh, in my example, fog and certainly becomes a certain clarity, that's when you would strike. In this case with the, uh, gradient of contrast, maybe that's sort of helping gauge exactly where the animal is. Because also the animal's going to be relatively homogeneous, right? Relatively similar sort of temperature. So perhaps a nice gentle gradient, and then you've got something that breaks that gradient, is actually clearer than something homogeneous with something else homogeneous on top, even if that homogeneous thing is, is a very different temperature. Hmm. That is the most succinct description of this paper that exists on earth i hope i well i hope i'm i hope i'm getting it right um i think you are i think you are and like i yeah i, I will freely admit that this is a i mean it's a pretty advanced methodology and also it's just quite a complicated um it's quite a complicated thing to get your head around really the way that they're doing this it's not a tool you know ordinarily in studies like this it kind of is an obvious thing that they're doing that makes sense but i think it's a difficult your example your analogy of the fog i think is quite good but it's quite difficult for us to empathize with without sort of being in the environment well maybe maybe we add a little a little bit of complexity to the to the fog example and let's say you're in a foggy uh, forest or woodland and on three sides of you, you have trees and things like that, which is breaking up this gradient. So you're not going to be looking there because the animal could be behind stuff. And that would be an example of your very high contrast environment where you can see trees very clearly with their close, fun things that are further back that are sort of faded. Um, but you have this high contrast of, uh, in our example, clear and, uh, hidden. So, you know, hot and cold, whatever. And then you've got this this route, which is a very gentle gradient, and that's going to be where you're where you're pausing because you you have got this combination of understanding distance and uh, avoiding these very high contrast areas that might break up the uh, thermal shape or, or signature of the animal. Because certainly when you they've got a they've got a plot uh, which essentially shows the Ah, oh, what's the best way of describing it? Almost like noise. Like imagine it like uh like firm, thermal noise and, and 
difficult to see through and then there's this one bit of the plot where the snake is is facing this zero degrees dead center and that's where the uh, sort of clear gradient is so it is very clear from how they've summarized this thermal landscape around them that the snake is looking dead center the best place it possibly could be and when you look at things like contrast or um, homogeneity of background that's just equally noisy all around the snake as in equal all around the snake mm. is that am i am i am i sort of getting there yeah i think so um trying trying to paint yeah. this picture so it's almost i'm still a bit confused so um in their example there's obviously like a bush in the middle of that figure too um so the low there's very low contrast there between the rat and the bush uh, and so is the point at which the snake will see the rat the point where it emerges from underneath the bush or is it just better at seeing it when it when yeah I, I think so when it when it breaks from a low contrast to a high contrast area so you've got this gradient from from bush to open and instead of just having everything as open and having to spot the rat moving across that, you have this, it's suddenly sort of popping into frame or, or popping, mm. you know, like I'm saying with the, with the fog, popping out of, out of fog when you're like, right, it's clear enough now. Suddenly that's there. when to take it. Yeah. And I wonder if changing um, contrast helping, uh, helping it. I wonder how much these snakes are concentrating all the time. Because well, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe they need that them. exactly that yeah. sort of sudden sudden punch. And if something was to if you were just on a homogeneous uh, uh, background and you had something came in from the left doing its little foraging around like a little rat, maybe that wouldn't be moving in such a way to elicit that response. Maybe you need that bonus pop coming from high contrast to oh sorry coming from low contrast to high contrast to sort of jump start that perhaps yeah maybe i don't know what's going on in their minds that's crazy this is really interesting i mean yeah it's a lot to get your head around but it's fascinating that they've got this this knack this knack of selecting background transitions yeah exactly crucially it's a sort of transition gradient it's not just pure high contrast noise it is something that's a little bit more controlled that'll, that'll help them out. I suppose it's, it's, it's quite a nice counterintuitive result. You'd expect just straight big difference between hot prey item and cold background is what snakes want, but actually they're working in a more complex way that um, they're using both the contrast of the prey versus the background and the different thermal setups within that within that background to try and maximize that uh, like appearance of prey and get that that sudden uh, recognition that there's a prey, prey item worth going for. Hmm, yeah. Yeah. Sensory ecology, full of surprises. Well, difficult to do because you can't see in the eyes of the animal. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, that's Sidewinders, at least insofar as how they hunt, what they do, where they go. Uh, I think it's a pretty comprehensive review of what Sidewinders <laughs> get up to, really. A, two, a comprehensive two-paper review with yeah. uh, question marks over whether we've correctly interpreted exactly uh, how the second paper is, 
or at least whether we've redescribed what they're describing correctly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, if you if you think you understand this paper better than uh, we do, then get in touch with some corrections. Yeah, please. Um, yeah. any other business? Oh, I believe it's species of the bi week time, isn't it? What am I saying? Any other business for? I just saw it written down. <laughs> I've scrolled too far. <laughs> I've lost the plot then. <clears throat> yes, species of the bi week. So, our species of the bye week, this bye week, is by... Well, another Pit Viper, right? That's our segue? Pit Viper? From Pit Viper to Pit Viper? From Pit Viper to Pit Viper, we're going to keep on Pit Vipering. The paper is Protobothrops Killamohi species novella, the second known species of lance-headed Pit Viper from Thailand. And this one is by... Uh, Samantha Vasaruchapong Chomgam Suntrarakan Pawankanant Sompan Smits Kunya Chanhome. Is that everyone? That's everybody, yeah. And Chanhome. And yeah, published in 2020. It's a brand new species of pit viper from Thailand, uh, which is cool. The um, Tropical Natural History Journal. Yeah, and again, they've used the name of the species in the title, which I approve of. Um, <laughs> gets to the point, right? Yeah, exactly. Gets to the point. Don't tease, just tell. Discovered um, up in the northern province of Chiang Mai in Thailand. Yep. Um, what can we say about this guy? Well, we can say that prior to this paper, there were 14 species in the genus Protobothrops. This one represents a 15th. And yeah, quite recently, they don't say explicitly when, but three specimens of an unknown pit viper, as you say, were found in Chiang Mai, and they were sent to the Red Cross snake farm in Bangkok for further investigation into their venom and other stuff. And sure enough, after some morphological analysis and a little bit of genetic work on a couple of genes, they turned out to be an unknown species. So yeah, they've described it and they've called it Protobothrops kilomohi which is a really cool name. This is a ludicrously cool name, and I love it. Yeah, this is actually among the best names that we've covered on the podcast, I would argue. It's up there. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll just read from the paper because it's quite a lot. The specific epithet, Kilomohi, is taken from the Romanized nouns Kilo, or Kelo, meaning fire or thunder, and Mohi, meaning mothers that lay eggs and stay to look after them during incubation time until hatching. Um, the first noun is drawn from the vernacular name of the new species in the northern Po Karen language, which is where the species is found. That's where what the language that people speak. And that's a language of Karen subfamily, Sino-Tibetan family. And yeah, the kilo bit probably refers to the snake's bite, inducing an immediate sharp burning pain, hence fire or thunder. And the second noun, mohi, refers to the fact that the maternal reproductive behavior of the genus protobothrops um, is that they look after the eggs they say and look after the eggs um, and it probably refers to that well it, it does refer to that yeah <laughs> it does refer to that uh, but, but they don't know for definite that this snake actually does that but it's assumed because all of its congeners do 
So yeah, they suggest the common names of Omkoi Lance-Headed Pit Viper, which is cool. Um, they got a Thai name and a Karen name there as well. And yeah. It's a beautiful little last... snake. It's an awesome snake. And it, well, we'll talk about how it looks, shall we? I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely. Just, just roll right into it. Um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's just super cool. It's sort of a rusty brownie red color with black kind of saddles along the back and a really crisp black facial markings and a really nice golden eye and yeah a lighter colored belly yeah how big are we talking we're talking total body length of 1310 millimeters so not monstrous quite a nice little little viper size yeah modest do we have any information about some Nat history stuff? Mountainous um, area, quite high elevations. Um, yeah, found at night usually, often ambushing on rocks, probably looking for lizards or frogs. And some suggestion that they actually are less common than they once were, possibly due to being persecuted or agriculture expanding. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Not a massive amount known about how they behave. One cool thing about them, we were talking about Dolo's Law. Well, Protobothrops, as a genus, may have some... One of its ancestors probably broke Dolo's Law because they're all... They're egg-laying snakes in a family of live-bearing snakes. Yes, yes. And with that bonus maternal uh, instinct to look after them crazy yeah, yeah. that's actually pretty neat way. isn't it yeah dollo's law of irreversibility increasingly on shaky ground although you know <laughs> i might be wrong about that i'm being quite presumptuous but yeah beautiful snake yeah it sounds as though uh there might still be one or some at the uh red cross place in bangkok It'd be interesting to know if they're on display Probably not. Probably not. But... but anyway, yeah, that's a brand new species of pit viper, which goes with our episode on the pit viper, which is or sidey sidey windies. Sidey windies. Yeah. So, have we got any other business? Uh, I have no other business that I can think of. Okay. Well, we had a couple of messages. Uh, one from Rob Stone of Morelia Python's Radio Fame. And he listened to our episode on Dolo's Law. And this doesn't really pertain to Dolo's Law, but it's still kind of interesting. Um, Elafe Dion, aka the Dion's Rat Snake, um, have some interesting things regarding their egg laying and incubation duration. Apparently, their incubation duration varies based on locality. And populations from east to west go from sort of normal colubrid egg incubation times to eggs which are basically clear and hatch in about 10 days so Hmm. depending on the locality yeah they're kind of heading towards live bearing they're kind of locked in that sort of yeah yeah it could be heading towards live bearing or it's just reacting to environmental factors that promote a shorter incubation time yeah yeah the reality is that they might have actually just found the best spot on that continuum for them yeah, and they've, and they've got that, that physiological flexibility to uh, take advantage of it. Yeah, but yeah, it's just cool to hear more 
sort of yeah sort of floppy weird eggs that don't really look like what you consider to be a traditional snake egg apparently they're like basically clear which is quite strange um <clears throat> and the other thing i had a nice message from matt parker so shout out to matt who is a keeper of all things wild near evesham in the south of england and he's also a good friend of mine and after he listened to episode three i should say all things wild is like a um wildlife park and after listening to episode three on boas where we discussed cuban boas taking down bats from perches on roofs and walls oh, yeah. he they have a they have a captive cuban boa at that institution and um yeah he started feeling it as if he's feeding it bats waiting till it's on a arboreal perch and then like flying the mouse all around the enclosure and he says it's been absolutely nailing them wow and what great enrichment yeah. oh that's yeah <laughs> what a wonderful story <laughs> Yeah, which is super cool. And uh, yeah, he sent me a video of the enclosure. It's really nice. It's got like a waterfall. It's massive. And the snake's like up in the trees having a wicked time. So. Oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, big up. And if once this whole lockdown thing's over, go give All Things Wild a visit. It sounds like they got some cool reptiles there. If you're in the south of England. If you're not, you know, I mean, it's probably impractical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in the south of England, but I have relatives there, so I will go there. Um, yeah, cool. And finally, uh, I've got a paper out. Um, yeah, first publication of my PhDs come out, and it's a short communication in the Herpetological Journal about the use of visible implant elastomer in snakes, which is this like sort of rubbery plasticky stuff that you mix up with a curing agent inject it under the skin and then when you shine a uvb light on it you can see through the skin it fluoresces and depending on where you put these blobs you can use it to mark the snakes um and this is a technique which people have used in lots and lots of other species from you know invertebrates to frogs and lizards and newts but no one had done it in wild snakes and we tried it out and sure enough we uh caught some juvenile snakes uh, last year that we'd tagged the year before and the marks were clear as day and they look great and it's a really um really good way of yeah working out who's who um which is kind of difficult to do with our study species because their pattern changes as they get older they basically start off with a really defined uh, belly and chin pattern and then as they age it completely disappears so it's quite difficult if you catch a juvenile prior to using this vie you couldn't really tell if it was the same one because we had no way of marking it so it's come in very handy yeah, things like pit tags were too big for the juvenile snakes, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and yeah, that's free to read, so I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Sweet, congrats. Thank you. Yeah. But that's it, I think. Um, in terms of things you should look at after listening to this podcast, uh, check out some of the YouTube videos of the Sidewinders just to get an impression of what we've seen of where these snakes are. You know, you've heard yeah. about their success or lack of success, but, you know, it really cements it when you see them sitting in one place all day and then a lizard coming along. The intensity of that interaction must be high. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody loves seeing some cool snake footage, right? What's not to like? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, um, I think all that remains to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Uh, be it to give us a nice message or to tell us we've got something wrong. Yes, both are very welcome. Exactly. Herbhighlights at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. I think that's just about it. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. 